Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your wives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves, themselves to their own husbands. Who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord? You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, be like minded, be sympathetic, love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We continue this morning to try to hone our vision of what the gospel looks like lived out. And Peter gives us further instructions this morning along those lines, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now, last week really began a theme that is continued in this portion of Peter's letter. And that was this theme of submission, which might involve suffering. And specifically, he talked in the sections we looked at in chapter 2 last week about submission even to corrupt authority, even to authority that was oppressive, and how we actually follow in the footsteps that we trace the pattern. Remember, the, the Greek language was that of a child tracing the pattern of a letter, that we trace the pattern that Jesus has given us, and we walk in his footsteps when we willingly submit even to corrupt authorities that would inflict suffering upon us, because in so doing, our witness is one that might win people over. In the same way that Christ's submission in the form of suffering became an avenue of my salvation and your salvation, he will redeem our submission to the point of suffering in that it will be a witness that will bring him glory. 
And so this theme of submission continues. And you'll begin to notice in Peter's letter that he really cycles between different themes. And he keeps coming back to them. Actually, if you go back to chapter 1, you will see, and it's why it was so hard for us to get through chapter 1. Chapter 1 introduces every single theme of this letter. And the whole letter then does this. And it just keeps circling back to those themes. And so in this passage this morning, we see that happen again as well. And so if we were to summarize what it all has in common, this section of the letter talks about what it means to live the gospel out in relationship to other people. Because the gospel is something that is lived out in relationship to other people. Oh, I didn't even plan to go here, but one of the lies of the enemy in our age is that spirituality is personal and private. So it doesn't impact how we relate to other people. That's a lie from the pit of hell. Because a relationship with Jesus is lived out towards others in a diverse kind of ways many of which we'll look at this morning. So if we come back, um, this first section that was read in verses 1 to 6 specifically addresses how a wife is to live out the gospel in relationship to her husband. Even more specifically, how a Christian wife is to live out her relationship with the gospel in her relationship to an unbelieving husband. Now, this is actually a really similar kind of example to the one we looked at last week about slaves. Remember how we talked about how slaves were an extreme example of someone who, if put under corrupt authority, there was nothing they could do about it within the system as it was set up in society. That would have been a really similar situation for a Christian wife who was married to a pagan man who had not yet given his life to Jesus. Under Roman law, a husband had ultimate, complete authority over all of the people in his household, including his wife. So you can imagine if a good Roman citizen man who's the head of his household and worships his household gods as he has been taught to do, as his fathers did, and his wife, who in the eyes of the law is his property, suddenly becomes what in his mind would have been an atheist. I was reading this morning a little bit in some of the, the material from the Voice of the Martyrs that tells the story of so many Christians over the centuries who laid down their lives because they refused to recant Jesus. And it's so ironic that often in these early days of the church, the reason they were killed was because they were atheists. Because they wouldn't worship all of the pagan gods that everybody else worshipped. And they wouldn't worship Caesar as Lord. And so they were considered atheists. People couldn't understand the idea that Christians would worship Jesus alone as Lord. One God. So now back into this household with this good Roman husband who worships his household gods and suddenly his wife comes home from some sort of a meeting and she says, honey, I now worship Jesus and only Jesus. So when you burn incense to the household gods, I can't do that with you anymore. 
And under Roman law, he has complete legal authority over her. So you can imagine the situations that unfolded. They would have been very similar to some of the stories that we hear out of the Muslim world. Whenever, especially women, come to Christ who are in households that are ran by men who are still Muslim, and we hear the horrible stories. We've heard them personally before, right? And people have shared them from those contexts with us of women who are beaten to near death, sometimes even killed, because it's seen as rebellion against the authority that they are supposed to be under. So put yourself in the position of that woman who has just given her life to Christ, and hear the encouragement and the strength in the words that Peter shares with her through the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence or fear of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now, verse 1 starts out very similar to how the previous passage did about government and about slaves to masters with this command to Submit. That's the primary verb. Peter, speaking to the wives in these situations, says, look, you need to submit, even to the point of suffering, in the same way that I'm telling all Christians to submit to governing authorities, even to the point of suffering. He says, you're to submit, even though it's hard, even though you know that you have freedom in Christ, that you're your own person in him and that he has freed your soul, you're still to take a posture of submission to your husband even if he doesn't yet believe. You don't get out from under submission just because he's not a Christian. And see, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that submission in an ideal situation in a Christian marriage is mutual, right? If we look at Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, Starting with verse 21, it says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then it goes on to explain what that looks like. How wives are to submit to their husbands and give them respect as heads of households. And how husbands, their form of submission is in loving their wives like Christ loved the church. Which means that they love them to the point of even laying themselves down for them. But you can't expect a husband who doesn't know Jesus to keep his end of the deal. How do you respect and submit when you don't know that he's going to love you like Jesus loves you? And Peter says, you still need to do it anyway. You still need to submit. And the reason is the same as the reason for submitting to the governing authorities. It's the same as the reason for the slave to submit to the masters. It's because in that submission to what society calls good order, people will see that and it will give Christianity a good look. And the unbelieving husband will see that. And it will give Christianity.
Christianity a good look. And in that submission, people might just be one. So it says, submit yourselves to your own husband, so that if any of them do not believe the word, being the word of God, the gospel, the scriptures, and catch this emphasis, they may be won over without words. Friends, especially in our closest relationships, our behavior is a stronger witness than our words. We talk about friendship evangelism, lifestyle evangelism, you know, by the way we live, people will be drawn to Christ. Can I tell you that the people that's most true with are the people who know you the best? And so the reverse is also true, that if your lifestyle is not one that is good, that points to Jesus, they're the people who see that the clearest. And so while you might be able to be sharing the gospel out on the streets with people who don't see your behavior at home and they might respond, the people in your home, they see everything. Good, the bad, the ugly. We let our guard down. And so Peter is telling wives that are in this situation, he's like, look, you don't need to just preach at your husband all the time that he's supposed to come to faith. You need to be such an exemplary good wife that your behavior will make him want to know the Jesus that you know. They'll be won over without words. Verse 2, specifically it says, in their behavior, when they see the purity, and literally the word here is fear of your lives. Um, this is purity that is paired with fear. Purity accompanied by fear. Purity and fear that are related to one another. Now, the word purity here is talking about being free from fault. A lot of times when we see or hear the word purity, we think just of sexual purity. And it's used that way in Scripture, but that's not the only way it's used. If you look with me at 1 John chapter 3, verse 3. 1 John 3, verse 3. It says, All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. It's talking about this spotless, without fault kind of lifestyle that Jesus is our example of. And so in our households, if we're living with others who don't know the Lord, we should be living in front of them in a submissive purity that is coupled then with fear. Now that's odd, with fear. What is this talking about? It's not talking about fear of what the husband may or may not do. Look with me ahead at verse 6. Like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. And this is taken from a reference in the Old Testament where Sarah addresses Abraham as Lord. That would have been a common title for women to use with their husbands. And so the implication is that she was submissive and obedient to her husband. She respected him. It says, you are her daughters if you do what is good or if you do what is right, that do good command from last week, and do not give way to fear. Now, hold on a second. <laughs> They're going to be won over when they see your purity paired with fear, but you're not to give way to fear. What's going on here? This is a revolutionary change that Peter is telling these women, look, you don't need to be afraid of how your husbands respond to your newfound faith. 
If they threaten you because you don't worship the household gods, you don't need to pay attention to their threats. You remain true. You keep worshiping the Lord Jesus only. You don't give way to fear of what if they divorce me, because if they divorce me since I've become a Christian, then I have nothing and I have nowhere to go. And Peter says, no, you don't give way to fear. You keep being faithful. You're not afraid of what they will or won't do because of your newfound faith in Jesus. What you do fear is the Lord. And your fear of him moves you to live a life that is without fault, that is submissive, that is beautiful. Look at verse 3. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Now, this has been taken out of context in history of the church to say, well, see, Scripture says that women aren't allowed to. No, this is actually saying that the beauty within should be so much more attractive that it overshadows whatever beauty is on the outside. That what is attractive about you to your husband shouldn't be the effort that you put into your appearance. Not saying you shouldn't put that effort in, but it should be a beauty that comes from the inside. Verse 4, rather it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Gentle and quiet. Now, I'll confess that Sometimes I read words like that, and I'm like, oh, Jesus, do I need to be repenting? Because, I mean, maybe gentle, but quiet? <laughs> Am I quiet? <laughs> like, I don't know if I'm quiet. Sometimes I think I'm really loud. Like, what does this mean? So I dug into both of these words, because clearly if I'm going to find the scripture, I want to know. I want to understand what this means. Um, and so let's look at this word gentle first. It, and in some translations, it's translated as meekness. And... The same Jesus who went into the temple with a whip and flipped the tables over is described as being meek. Um, so it's not being a softy, which is sometimes how I might interpret it if I don't really think about it. If we look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, or the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. So Jesus is applying this to all people, men and women, that if you are a meek person, God's blessing comes with that. Now look at Matthew 21, verse 5. This is about Jesus as he is entering Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle or meek, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Can I tell you, these are the only other two places this word is used in the New Testament. So women are told to be meek, to be gentle. And the only other two places we see it in Scripture are describing Jesus and Jesus telling all of his people that that's what they're supposed to be. So what does this word mean? What does it mean biblically to be meek? One of the ways that this word was used in ancient Greek culture was to describe war horses. Now, first, I want you to picture a war horse. It's quite the opposite of the, the foal, the donkey's foal. When I picture a war horse, I picture like a Clydesdale-sized, like massive horse, but that's super agile, muscular, 
but here's the other side of it. A war horse is well-trained and it only uses its strength to do what its master wants it to do. Meekness is strength under control. So here's Jesus riding into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the Son of God, the Lord of hosts, who could have called angels down to fight his way into the city. But he's strength under control, and he comes on a lowly donkey. And so God is telling wives, look, God gives you strength. He frees you. He has brought you out of slavery. You are not a possession to your husband, even if the law thinks that you are. But your strength is going to be under control for the sake of your witness, and you're going to submit. To be meek, to be gentle. You know, it takes a lot of a lot of strength to keep power under control. And then this word quiet. As I began to study this word, I was kind of surprised that it comes from a literal idea, a word that means keep one seat. Here's the picture I have in my mind. Something's going on that's got you just riled up on the inside, and what you want to do is jump up out of your seat and scream, but you sit there. Controlled. To be meek and quiet. And that is beauty in the eyes of God. When we don't let strength get out of control, when we don't let our passions rile us to the point of being pop stirrers. This word quiet is also used in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. If you turn with me there, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 2. And he writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Christians aren't meant to be the people stirring the pot. They're not meant to be the ones flying out of their seats when something doesn't go their way. But they're meant to be meek. And then one day they'll inherit the earth. And the dominion that God gave Adam and Eve in the beginning will be restored to his meek ones who were willing to stay in their seat. Moving on to the section addressed to husbands. And similar to Ephesians, we're in this context of submission. Even that is just bizarre. Husbands wouldn't be addressed in the context of submission. It says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect, or some translations say honor, as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. To live considerately, or another way to translate this, is to live according to knowledge. 
The idea here is that a husband is to be accumulating personal knowledge that leads to his considerate behavior towards his wife. It made me think of when Pastor Scott Bird did our premarital counseling. He challenged both of us. And he said, look, when you get married, you're signing up to be a lifetime student of another person. Because there's always things you need to learn about them, and they change. And as you learn them and relearn them and relearn them, you learn how to be considerate and loving towards them. He used the simple example of how one of the ways that he would show consideration to his wife is that he would stop at like the gas station and get her her favorite kind of candy or drink and take it home to her after work. He said but as he had to be a student of his wife, he learned that her favorites changed. So we had to always be considering and gaining that personal knowledge to know what it meant to consider her and love her well, to be considerate, and then to respect or to honor. And this means both verbally, not to run her down, and with actions. Friends, if we run our spouses down with our words, we're not living out the gospel in our marriage. But we're to speak in ways that build one another up, that show respect, that show honor. And then with actions as well, that back those words up. It says specifically that they're to do this because their wives are the weaker partner. That doesn't mean weaker morally or weaker intellectually, but it means weaker physically and socially. Women were often vulnerable. We talked about how men had, according to the law, ultimate authority over their wives, which meant that abuse could very easily occur. There weren't consequences for it in the same way that there would be now. And so women were weaker in that they were physically vulnerable and they were weaker in that they were socially vulnerable because if they were being abused, they couldn't just leave because then they had no way to fend for themselves. They couldn't just go and get a job and make some money and support themselves. And so God is telling them that as the weaker partner, they're to be considerate and they're to honor them. I liked Peter H. David's commentary on this. He said, rather than exploiting his power or denying that he has it, he lends it to her and uses his power to care for her and to protect her. And this action did two things. One, it recognized what society did not recognize at the time, and that was that before God, a husband and wife were equal in the Lord. If um, we look at Galatians 3, 28 to 29, we see the same thought expressed. Galatians 3, 28 to 29, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, which we did on last week, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. It's not to say that the genders don't exist or that slavery didn't exist. They are real. But there is equality in the kingdom. 
And so when a husband who has the ultimate authority and power in the eyes of society uses that to be considerate and honorable towards his wife, it puts this message out that says, what's happening here? The way this couple interacts is different. The way this husband treats his wife is different because they found something that we want. Their marriage looks different. And just a, a side note with this, it's not addressed if a husband or a Christian and the wife isn't specifically. Um, but again, culturally, if the man converted, the whole household was converted. Now, that didn't necessarily mean that the wife had a personal relationship with Jesus, but it did mean that the husband wasn't dealing with the same kind of dynamics that a wife who had become a Christian and her husband hadn't would have been dealing with. Uh, but these would have applied in the same way. Can you imagine? The husband gives his life to the Lord, says, okay, family, we're going to serve Jesus now, not the Roman gods, and the wife is going, I don't know, like... I have loyalty to my, my grandparents' gods and the ways that I've grown up with. But then her husband begins to treat her with consideration and to honor and respect her. Wouldn't that win her? Wow, this Jesus has changed you and in the way that you love me. And then secondly, the husband is told to do this because anything less would hurt his relationship with God. It says that, so nothing will hinder your prayers. We look at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, starting with verse 23. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. See, we cannot forget that the horizontal relationships that we have impact our vertical relationship with the Lord. And the truth that's being revealed here in these instructions to husbands is that the the relationship between husband and wife as the closest possible human relationship, if you are in the wrong in how you're treating your spouse, then the impact will be massive on your relationship with the Lord. Peter H. Davids again worded it like this. As the closest human relationship, the relationship to one spouse must be most carefully cherished if one wishes a close relationship with God. And so ultimately, the way that we're to treat each other in marriage, the way that I as a wife would submit to my husband, the way that Darren as my husband would love me, both of us are doing those things not for really the other one, but for the Lord. And so this is why these women were told, don't give way to fear. They weren't meant to be about the intimidation of a non-Christian spouse. They were meant to submit to them because it's what would honor Jesus. And therefore, when submission to them wasn't honoring to him, they stood their ground. In the same way we talked about that our submission to governing authority will never biblically compromise our holiness, but it might compromise our rights. The same applies in the home. That we should be willing to compromise on things and deny ourselves 
whether it's out of the feeling of love towards our spouse or not, because it's honoring to the Lord. But at any point that our spouse would ask something of us that would compromise our integrity with the Lord, that would ask us to violate his commandments, at that point we stand. Because our submission is really to the Lord, not to the other person. It's all for Christ. Now moving on to verse 8, the scene shifts from specifically in the home to just in the church in general. It says, finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. At the middle of this list is love, and this is the love that we get the name Philadelphia from. It's that brotherly love or that family love. And we've already hit on this in this letter, the importance of loving the family that you've now been birthed into that will last for eternity, right? You're stuck together forever. This family's not going anywhere, so learn to love each other now. But couching that commandment to love are other instructions that show us really what that looks like. What's it mean to love our church family like family? The first one is to be of one mind or to be like-minded. And we know that that mind that we're to have is the mind of Christ that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 16. He says, how are we to know the thoughts of God? We do, because we have the mind of Christ. And that mind means that we're to have the mindset of Jesus and how we think about one another. If you look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. It says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Do you see we're still tracing the pattern? We're still tracing the pattern of how Jesus related, how Jesus interacted. Who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we're to be of one mind, this mind, the mindset that puts others first because it honors the Lord. Second, to be sympathetic. I feel like we lose something with that English translation. Because when we talk about having sympathy... Honestly, I think that the connotations for that word are negative in our culture. Because you know, we hear people, I don't want your sympathy. Right? Don't pity me. I don't want your sympathy. But the Greek word that we get that from, the meaning of it, if I try to drill it down the best I can, is to suffer with others. If you'll look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says, For we do not have a high priest, talking about Jesus, who was unable to empathize, that's the word, with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. So Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses because he has suffered them with us. He experienced the suffering of being tempted, but he never caved. Yet he understands what we experience when we are tempted because he has suffered with us. He came from heaven to earth to suffer with us. He has sympathy for us. And then we're to use that 
with others as well. If we look again in the book of Hebrews, it's at this time um, at chapter 10, verse 34. It says, you suffered along with, that's the same word that's translated to be sympathetic, the same root. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. We're to enter into each other's suffering. Walk with each other through it. It's how we're to love one another. And then this word compassion we look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 17. 1 John 3, 17. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no, this is this word, compassion or pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? This is a feeling to action word. Compassion isn't just something we feel, it's something that moves us, that moves our feet to go and do something about it. So to truly have compassion on somebody in need means that you go and address the need. If they need food, you take them food. If they need clothes, you take them clothes. That is compassion. And this word is used over and over again of Jesus, especially in the Gospel of Mark. And every time that he has compassion on people, he does something about their need. How do we love each other as family? We do stuff when we're moved with compassion. We look at Mark chapter 6, verse 34. Just one example. Mark chapter 6, verse 34. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things saw that what they needed was instruction, guidance. And so his compassion moved him to offer it. As we trace the pattern, as we walk in the steps, when we see brothers or sisters in need, our compassion should move our feet and our hands. The word is used as well, I won't read it, but when Jesus is teaching and the 4,000 are there and they're hungry, it says that he was moved to compassion and then perform the miracle to feed them. How do we love each other? Let our compassion move us. And then the last word there is humility, to be humble, to take a lower place and put others' interests ahead of our own. This is still all about submission. How do we love in our homes, in our closest relationships? We submit as though we're submitting to the Lord. How do we love our enemies, those who oppress and persecute us? We submit. How do we love in the body of Christ? We submit our wants and needs and put their wants and needs ahead of ours. Then verse 9, going back to our enemies, it says, Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. This is back to last week about not taking vengeance, but trusting that God will bring about justice, that we don't have to bring that on ourselves. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. 
Man, I don't know about you, but when somebody's insulting me, I tend to go more to the the um, theology of the Disney movie Bambi than I do to scripture sometimes. Can't say nothing nice. It will say nothing at all. Right? But that's not actually the biblical instruction to God's people. When someone insults us, we are to say something back. And it's to be blessing. Remember that we have all been called as priests. We talked about that earlier in this letter. And what's the role of the priest? It's to mediate. It's to speak blessing over people that don't deserve it. To pray for them, to intercede for them. And so when people insult us as believers, we take the hit and we bless them. Why? Because in that submissive posture that follows in the pattern of Jesus, who remember on the cross about his about the very people who had beat him and crucified him, audibly where they can hear it, his prayer is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In following that example, Maybe the person who insults you might be like the guard who says, surely this man was the son of God. That when we return blessing to those who insult us, it might just win them over. Wouldn't that make it worth it? And then finally, the section closes with a quote from Psalm 34. It's very appropriate to summarize a lot of what's gone before. It says, whoever would love life and see good days. Anybody want to love life and see good days? Must keep their tongue from evil. No slander, no malice, no insulting. And their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good, both in the eyes of God and the eyes of society around us, right? They must seek peace and pursue it. Some translations say, or chase it, or one of my favorites, work hard to maintain it. Because peace with other people doesn't just happen on its own. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And there we see a reference back to if you're not honoring your spouse, your prayers are hindered. Because God won't hear the prayers of those who do evil, but only those who do good. Whoever would love life and see good days. I want to encourage you this morning that if you find yourself in a place of suffering, maybe submitting in a way that is hard. That God, even in the midst of that, can sometimes give us a foretaste. A foretaste of that life that you can love and good days, where even though it's hard, there's that inner delight and satisfaction in honoring him. But here's the thing, even when we might not be feeling that foretaste, we know that one day we will sit in a kingdom where we won't have to worry about 
staying in our seat because there will be nothing to rile us up. It won't be hard to be quiet. One day it won't be difficult to not insult because all we'll receive is the blessed word of God. One day there will be no injustice, but only the justice of a good, righteous, holy leader, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. But in the meantime, relationships aren't easy. Relating to a non-Christian world, it's not easy. Relating even to other believers, it's not easy sometimes to have the mindset of Christ, to be submissive, to honor others above ourselves. But God promises if we'll do it, we'll be blessed. I want to encourage you this morning to do the good stuff even when it's hard stuff, because it'll be worth it. God will bless you. Will you stand?